return to Galatians in chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. I only preached verse 13 last time, and so we'll cover these next two. I want to say a couple of things. They don't really relate to the sermon, but uh, maybe they'll help somebody, or maybe I just need to say them. But when I was younger, I had a lot of big ideas. I thought they were good ideas, perhaps, and I wanted to be successful. I was uh, an evangelist, and I preached all the time, everywhere. Um, you can ask my wife. There wasn't many a night that I was even home. And, um, you know, I just wanted to be successful and make it and be this great preacher, I suppose. And I remember going to Jamaica one time with my friend Brett, and I preached in a venue with 5,000 people in Jamaica. And I thought, man, I've, I've arrived, you know, I've got a congregation of 5,000, you know, and I never preached to so many people in my life, and and um, anyways, that event happened, and it is here and is gone, and I can't even tell you anybody's name. I, I don't remember anybody there, but I have the privilege, <laughs> the honor of going with Brother David and my daughter Lydia to somewhere in Honduras that nobody even cares about, and giving Rolando a hug. Brother, that is far more satisfying and far more joy-filled than preaching to 5,000 people any day. Uh, to see another brother in Christ encouraged to love on a church, as we say in East Texas, that's high cotton. And um, I, I can't think of a greater privilege. No religious magazine's going to pick us up. Nobody's going to write about the event. Nobody cares in one sense. But you care. The Lord cares. Rolando and his church cares. Praise the Lord. And I tell you, I'll preach just as hard and zealously there with 20 or 30 people as I do here every Sunday morning. Why? Because Christ is worthy to be preached. You know, and so it's also a great joy to leave here and to have prayers uh, give a mission report in the ladies' class this morning, see the smiles on their faces, and uh, it's encouraging to at least feel that the church is supportive and encouraged uh, in the things that we're doing uh, down in South America. I'm very thankful for that. I do appreciate uh, anyone who checks on my wife. Uh, she'll be here by herself all week, so if you happen to check on her or something, uh, definitely would appreciate that. If you feel led to send me a text message and say that you're praying for me, whether I respond or not, it will be an encouragement. I may respond. I don't know. It just depends on the day. But if you, you're not bothering me. You're not, the, nobody in this church is ever bothering me. You want to call me, you want to text me, you, my friend, are not a bother. Now, the world might bother me, but you're my family. If you want to tell me you're praying for me, that doesn't bother me. If you want to tell me you stopped and checked on my wife, that doesn't bother me. It makes me happy. It makes me want to serve all the more. And I'm not giving you a guilt trip and trying to get you to do something. I'm just letting you know, honestly, you're not bothering me. I, I'm 54 years old. I can handle a text message. I can deal with it. And you all know me well enough. If I can't deal with it, I will delete it. So whatever. <clears throat> That's the way I roll. All right, Galatians, Christian liberty, 
say a few things about this text. Hopefully it'll help you tonight, but let me read the text again, 13 through 15. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Why? Why? Okay, verse 14, this is the why, because or for. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. Don't make this complicated. It's very simple. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is straight from Leviticus 19.18. But if you bite and devour one another, you better watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So I just remind you very briefly in verse 13, I'm not going to re-preach it, just remind you that we talked about negatively, you're not to use your liberty to gratify the flesh, and I talked about positively, you're been set free in order that you can serve, you can love others. Paul is free to do a lot of things, but he was not going to use his freedom to cause a stumbling block for another believer not doing that. We contrasted this irony here. We have two words in verse 13, freedom to be a slave. Freedom to be a slave. That doesn't seem to go together, but it is the truth of Scripture. You're set free from the devil, set free from a guilty conscience, set free from hell. In order that you can be a slave to Christ, he's a good master, his yoke is easy, It's light, it's a joy to have it, and you can freely serve Him, and you can do so with delight and joy. Now, we looked at those things. We also contemplated what we were freed from, freed from a guilty conscience, freed from the tyranny of sin, freed from the dominion of the devil, and then we were freed from the fear of man, and we can walk freely in our identity with Christ. The time that has passed, Peter told us, is enough for doing what Gentiles do. Let's move on and let's live godly, holy in this present age. We've been set free to do so, and it's the Spirit of God that enables us to live godly. Not in our own strength, it's grace that the Spirit's been given to help us. That was freedom. Now let's talk tonight a bit about fulfillment in verse 14. The whole law, and you see the word, is fulfilled in this one word, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. So let's do a couple of scriptures. I'll give you the references. You can write them down. I'm not going to belabor them very long, but we do need to hear what God's word says, where we have a foundation of truth to be established from. How do we fulfill this law? In Leviticus 19, it is the center of the holiness code, and right in the middle of the holiness code that God is laying out through Moses in Leviticus, in chapter 19, verse 17 and 18, we find these words. It's always been the same. Nothing changed. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You can reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him, but you don't take vengeance. Don't do that. We don't take vengeance. And we don't bear grudges. We don't do that against the sons of your own people. 
You don't bear grudges in the church with brothers and sisters. You say, well, how do you get away from that? Forgive, 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 forgive. We all sin. We all do things that are not good. We learn to forgive one another. It's the only way you can save your marriage. You learn how to forgive your spouse. You can't hold on to these things and bear a grudge. And then he says, but this is what you do instead of holding a grudge. Love your neighbor as yourself. Based on what? I am the Lord. That's what it's based on. This is my character. This is who I am. We love because we learn it from the Lord. Now, in the New Testament, that's Old Testament. It's just as valid as the New Testament, and they both agree. So if we look in the New Testament on this same thought, I'll give you these references. Matthew 7, 12. Whatever you wish others to do to you. It's a great word, is it not? How do you want to be treated? How do you want people to address you? How do you want people to relate to you? When you have a difficult week, what do you want other people to say? What do you want them to do? How do you want to be ministered to? You say, well, I I would like this, this, and this. Then do that for someone else. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Why? This is the whole law. And all the prophets, it's all summed up here together. This is what I want done for me, so I'll do it for you. I want to be encouraged, so I'll encourage you. I want to be comforted, so I'll comfort you. I want the truth, I'll give you the truth. This is the law and the prophets. Matthew 19, 19, you'll find, just take the Old Testament law and apply it. Just straight through the New Testament. Matthew 19, 19, it's never changed. Honor your father and your mother. Still valid. I'm 54 years old. 54. My parents are in their 80s. I have to speak to them in respect. I have to be patient. I have to listen. I have to be kind. I have to give them the respect that's due them for their position. I have to honor them until I die. That's the biblical framework. That's what I've been set free to do is to honor my father and my mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 19, 19. Matthew 22, 39 and 40. Jesus says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He has this interesting phrase. On these two commandments, the first one's love God, the second one's love neighbor. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Everything Moses said, everything the prophets said, all of it is held together by this sense of love. That's what it is. Jesus says that. Whatever you wish others to do to you, you do that to do to you, you do to them. And then you also have in Mark chapter 12, verse 31, same line again. Love your neighbors yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Just do the greatest thing. Love God, love your neighbor. Then you have Luke 10, 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, at this point, if you're checking out and saying, look, we already know all of this, well, that's fine. I know it too. I can quote most of these. We need to hear this in order to make this apply in just a moment, okay? So in Romans 13, 8 through 10, just a couple more of these. 
In Romans 13, it's a great truth. He says, owe no one anything. Well, except for this, to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled it. The law is not negated. Let those people in. The law is not negated. It's fulfilled by love. He goes on to say in Romans, for the commandments, plural, you shall not, notice what he does in Romans, you shall not commit adultery. That's from the moral code in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery. You shall not murder, Ten Commandments. You shall not steal, Ten Commandments. You shall not covet, Ten Commandments. And any other commandment, all of the commandments, the ten and any other commandment in all of the Old Testament or the New Testament, they're all summed up in this word. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If anything was to distinguish the church as radically different from the world, it should be our love for one another. There's evidence of that here. It's not always perfect. It's not always lived out right. But there is fruit of it here. It can always be increased. It can always be better. But at least it exists here. I've been loved. You've been loved in varieties of different ways. Meals have been served. Yards have been mowed, cars have been fixed, people have been picked up and given rides. All kinds of things have happened in the name of Christian love to serve each other. Did we miss somebody along the way? I'm sure we did. Did we overlook something along the way? I'm sure we did. But be forgiving. Forgive those oversights and let's do better tomorrow. Let's keep pressing on because we know what the Bible says And we know that love is at the central figure of keeping the law and fulfilling it. By the way, if you actually want to love your neighbor, don't lie to them. If you want to love your neighbor, don't take the stuff. If you want to love your neighbor, don't sleep with their wife. If you want to love your neighbor, don't covet their stuff. It's like... This stuff really matches. Love looks like the Ten Commandments being carried out in reality. We love enough to fall in line with those because we delight in our God. You can also read 1 Corinthians 13, that love bears all things. And you can read the whole section there. I'll not take the time tonight, but read 1 Corinthians 13. You ever come in for marriage counseling, that's where I start. Love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things. Now, This commandment to love your neighbor, these second half of the Ten Commandments, if you will, the following six, do not delete the first four to love God, right? So in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, well, quite frankly, he's just a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he can see, he cannot love God, whom he has not seen. If we can't love each other, how do we pretend to say that we love God? The commandment we have from him 
whoever loves God, most people in church, I love God, must also love his brother. The two are not mutually exclusive. Loving God equals loving neighbor. Loving neighbor equals loving God. Love looks like the Ten Commandments being displayed in the reality of everyday life. Love is the, but keep this in mind though, I don't want to veer from being saved by grace and living by grace because that's what the heart of Paul is saying here. Love is the result of conversion, not the means to conversion. It's like, well, if I love everybody enough, God will be happy with me. No, 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 that's not how it works. We come to repentance and faith, our hearts change, and the natural response is to love. So it must be that we're saved by grace, and those who are love God and love neighbor. This moves us in. This could be a whole sermon. I'm not doing a whole sermon, but this moves us into this phrase, the law of Christ. What in the world is this law of Christ? Let me give you some things to consider. Now, we're not under the law, but we're under the law of Christ. We're not under the law, but we're under the law of Christ. What is that saying? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21. 1 Corinthians 9, 21. Paul says to those outside of the law, who are we referring to when we make a reference to those outside the law? It's not the Jews because they're trying to live by the law because they're legalists. So we must be referring to a Gentile people who are pagans and who are slaves to vices and to the things of the world. So those outside of the law, they're not being held under Judaism. They're not under this religious framework of the Jews, so they're outside the law. He says, to those outside the law, he says, I became as one outside the law. So, so Paul, you became a lawbreaker? Hold on. In parentheses in the ESV, it says, not being outside of the law of God. I wasn't that. You see, I was under the law of Christ. You went outside the law to reach those outside of the law, but you remained under the law of Christ. Yes, why, why did you do that? That I might win some. Something I know about the law of Christ is this. Under the law of Christ is a burden for the souls of men. Whatever the law of Christ is, it compels Paul to be concerned with winning some. I'll relate however I can relate, but make no mistake about it, I'm relating with you for your soul. And we could do this in many illustrations, just grab one off the top of my head. But I would go to the honky-tonk woman. You know this in my history when it was this. It's not in existence anymore. I hate alcohol with everything within me. I hate cigarette smoke. I hate it all. I hate all the junk that's hanging on the walls. I hate every bit of it. But I'll go to the honky-tonk woman once a month. Why? I mean, outside the law, if you will, but under the law of Christ. And I would go in and I would call them by name. I would talk to them about the gospel. I would plead with them about Christ. I did most every one of their funerals when they died. Why? Because the law of Christ constrained me to love them for their soul. The law of Christ has something to do with that. And then in Galatians, we've seen this a couple of times. But, oh, no, we haven't seen this. Galatians 6, 2. We'll get there eventually someday. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
So the law of Christ has something to do with loving lost souls, and the law of Christ has something to do with bearing one another's burdens within the church. A brother's hurting. I'm going to hurt with him. A brother has need. I'm going to figure out ways to meet that need. I'm going to do what it takes in order to say, you do not have to go through this alone. Your kid rebels and runs off. You don't have to go through it alone. We can get together. We can pray. We can plead with God. You lose your job. You don't have to lose your job by yourself. We can get together. We can seek God together. We can encourage one another. You, you have something going on in your life. You bear one another's burdens. Why? Because I've been set free to be under the law of Christ. And under his law, I want to bear your burdens. And when I have a burden, I want you to help me bear my burden. And we do this together because we're free to be under the law of Christ. Souls, brothers and sisters, how we relate to both of those categories with a great concern for them above ourselves, something in that tells me that's what the law of Christ is. We obey the law out of gratitude. And we're enabled to do so by the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't crucial. We cannot perform love to one another, and we cannot bear one another's burdens without divine help. In our flesh, we just can't pull it off because we're too selfish for one thing. But we need help. The Spirit of God dwells in the believer to enable you and strengthen you to keep the law of Christ that you could delight and do these things that we're talking about from scriptures, the Spirit helps you in this. A couple of texts, one in Galatians 5, we've already seen Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ set us free, stand firm therefore, you don't have to submit to that yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.13 that we just looked at, Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, Spirit's enabling, encouraging us, Let us also keep step with the Spirit. Let us keep step with the Spirit. Do you think the Spirit is concerned for souls? Do you think the Spirit is concerned with bearing one another's burdens? Do you think the Spirit is concerned with loving your neighbor as yourself? Do you think the Spirit is concerned with being in agreement with the law of Christ? You have to say yes and amen because the Spirit never disagrees with the Son. The Son never disagrees with the Spirit. And so the Spirit is all about enabling you to be able to function in step with Him. But he's not going to help you to function contrary to the law of God or to the law of Christ. In Ephesians 3, 16 and 17, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why would he strengthen you in your inner being by the spirit so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith and that you would be rooted and grounded in, in love. That's, that's what the Christian is, and that's what he does, and the Spirit enables that to happen in the Christian. Now, I won't read it all, but Ephesians 4, 20 through the end of the chapter says all of those same things. And then Ephesians 5, 1 through 3 
Be imitators of God as beloved children. How can I be an imitator of God as a beloved child? The next line says, walk in love. So I say to you in application tonight, be very wary of men who are devoid of the Spirit who try to guilt you into religious performance. That's these troublemakers. They don't have the Spirit, and they're demanding that grace plus works saves. You must be saved by grace, but you must be circumcised. And they're trying to make them feel guilty if they don't submit to circumcision. Be very, very wary of people devoid of the Spirit using guilt trips to get you to perform as if God would then love you more or start accepting you. It's dangerous business. Reject that stuff. Look them in the eye and say, look, I don't have to perform to be loved because I was loved before I ever performed. I don't have to meet a perfect standard before Christ will love me. He loved me when I was wicked. He loved me when I was depraved. He loved me when I was dead in my sins. He loved me enough that he called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. I didn't have one thing to bring, and he just simply gave me everything I didn't deserve. You don't have to be guilted into a performance mentality. I would say to you, most typical Baptist churches, evangelical churches around the world live off making people feel guilty in order to get them to perform to a certain standard. It is death, death, death. What do you want in a church? I don't want you to come here because you feel guilty. I don't want to come here. I want you to come here because we put a guilt trip and all of a sudden you feel bad like I didn't live up to the standard. I want you to come here because you love Christ and because you love the brothers and sisters in Christ and the Spirit of God enables that in you. I want you to come to church with delight with joy, with pleasure, with longing. I want you to hunger and thirst for righteousness because then you will be filled. Oh, that we would come in a sense as a man does when he falls in love with a woman. He doesn't go over to pick her up for a date going, well, this is what you got to do these days. You just got to pick them up. You got to go out and buy this expensive meal and you got to go do this and all this junk. I guess I'll do it because that's what the world says. Nobody that falls in love thinks like that. Won't you just be in love with Christ and come and worship because you love him? Be very wary of those devoid of the Spirit trying to guilt you into righteous performance. But I would also say on the other side, be wary of men who are devoid of the Spirit who press you to justify things that are biblically sinful. You're free. You can do this. This is how you justify it. This is how you justify it. This is how you justify it. Be very, very wary of men like that. When you're doing what's right and you're walking in step with the Spirit, you don't have to justify anything. You know, for the last month, I've drank a gallon of water every day. I don't have to justify that. There's nothing sinful about drinking water. People justify what they know the Bible is telling them they ought not to be doing. Be very wary of people trying to get you to justify sinfulness. And Christ was free. We established that last week. But he served. Imitate Christ. Use your freedom to demonstrate your love of God by loving your neighbor and do so by the enabling of the Spirit of God. 
I say this very briefly, but I haven't heard it in a while. I'm thankful for it that I haven't heard it. But I have heard it over the years. You get these wacko guys that come in, got a bunch of zeal and no knowledge, and they say, look, I didn't come to church to just sit on the pew. I'm not even sure what you're saying in one regard. I'm not sure what you're getting at. But if you can't find something to do in this church, that's not my fault. I mean, you say, well, all I do is sit here. That's on you. There's plenty of people here that need to be loved. People need to be encouraged. Needs need to be met. I promise you every week there's something to be done around here with people who need each other. And if you can't see that, you have problems. So there's lots of ways to serve. And by the way, newsflash to everybody, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on here you don't even know. People serve and do things and you don't ever even know it. Why? Because they don't feel a need to magnify themselves. They just serve quietly unto the Lord. God knows everything they do. There's plenty. I've been in church 54 years, and I've never run out of work, never run out of ways to serve. There's always a way to serve a brother or a sister. Get on your knees, and you pray, God, show me a way to encourage someone else. You just keep praying until he shows you. God, show me a way to bless somebody this week. See if God will show you a way. Think through somebody's situation and say, man, if I was in that situation, this is what I would want done for me. Go do it for them. Always a way to serve your brother. Lastly, and much shorter, fighting. Baptists have been good at this over the years. Know how to fight. People know how to act really bad when it gets to that point. Verse 15 Paul says, but look, if you bite and devour one another, you watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let me give you three, no, two quick things. One, contrary to Alaskan uh, things that are going on up there, bad doctrine causes division. And it causes fighting. I don't care how you word it. When you got two different doctrines, something's going to happen. When there's bad teaching, There will be church fighting. It's inevitable. In this church of Galatia, I assure you, there's some people in this church who believe Paul. We're saved by grace. We live by grace. There's some people in this church that think we're saved by grace plus works. We got two different doctrines in one church. One is false and one is good. And we're in the same place. There's a fight. And that's why Paul says, you bite and you devour, you're going to consume each other, and the church is going to die. Even churches, if you don't know this, churches die and close all the time. Breaks my heart right now. My brother's trying to pastor a church in East Texas, and they had a meeting this this last month, and they look at all the finances. They cut my brother's salary again because they just don't have any money. They cut the janitor's salary, and the conclusion is if something doesn't change this year, at the end, in December the 31st, they will close the doors because they won't be able to pay the bills no more. Why? Doctrine, fighting, all this junk has gone on, and it has devoured the whole church. I preached a revival there one time in my life. We had a tent revival, seated over 300 and something people. We couldn't even get them all in the tent. They had to raise the sides of the tent up. There was lawn chairs all out around the tent. It was packed to the max, and we had this really holy rolling thing going on. Boom. All of a sudden, fighting, adultery, this, that, and other, and it consumed and dried it all up. Now you go there on Sunday morning, you'll be glad if you find 10 to 12 people on Sunday morning, and if you go on Wednesday night, you might find five. Happens. Bad doctrine. 
That's why you want leadership that knows what they believe. You want leadership that studies the Bible. You want leadership that won't bend and that won't give, that'll stand for the Word of God, because that's the only thing we can unite on is truth. I can assure you that there was the fighting was going because of two different doctrines being taught. Phrases, uh, doctrinally, div- division doctrinally is pictured as a wild beast rushing upon another. You see that there. If you bite and devour one another, it's like wild beast. So the phrase would be, they bite each other, they gulp each other down. It's really sad when you see it in a church and you see, I've seen it in church, where guys actually stand up in a business meeting and cuss somebody out and actually have threats to take it outside and we'll duke it out. I've seen that happen in church. It, it happens, has happened. A.T. Robertson uh, does a lot of word studies and things, and he described this phrase here as two snakes fighting and grabbing each other by the tail and swallowing each other. There's a guy by the name of Cole, I'm not familiar with him, but he described it as two Kilkenny cats of the Cromwellian times who fought so furiously that when the fight was over, neither cat had any fur left on them. Just ripped the fur off of each other. That's what can happen in a church when there's the doctrinal division and you see, yeah, yes, I refer to my son-in-law. It, it, these people are doing all these things. I'm not saying my son-in-law is perfect, but these events are putting my son-in-law in the position of being homeless. You don't understand the weight of that to tell your wife, hey, we don't have a place to live, we have to move. And it's like all of that's because there's this division doctrinally and everybody wants their way. And at the end of the day, we really don't even care what happens to you. These things happen in church life, and you know this. You have your own stories. You have a granddad. He won't ever go to the church again because all these things happen. One of the sweetest men I knew was Beverly's grandfather. He was a deacon in a church. I don't know nothing about the church, but all the time that I knew him, I could never get him come. The only time he came was when me and Beverly got married. Why? Because he had seen biting, he had seen devouring, and he had had his fill of it, and no matter what you said, he was never going back. These things, abiding and devouring, they, they destroy people, destroy the name of the church, and people carry these things deeply for the rest of their lives. So make sure, in our church, by the word Baptist Church, make sure you understand, agreeing on Scripture, doctrine, and theology is precious it's sweet, and it's a joy to be able to go to classes and agree about the Bible. We may have differences about things, but on the whole, we agree about truth and Christ. We have communion. We agree about the bread broken and the bloodshed. These things are precious, and count it a great privilege that there's some level of unity here that ain't always been here. Blessed resolution, repentance, and submission to the truth of what Paul is preaching is the only solution. The only way a church can be healthy is if its members love God and love one another. It's the only way. Legalism and antinomianism, to get both sides, are only reconciled by meeting in the middle. And the middle is to be saved by grace and to live by grace, enabled by the Spirit of God. 
rhetorical questions to end the sermon. How did you come to Christ? It's the same question Paul asked. Was it grace or works? How do you live in Christ? Gratitude or drudgery? Do you know what it means to be saved by grace and live by gratitude? Have you been set free? What have you been set free from? What does your freedom enable you to do? Do you continually pressure people by making them feel guilty for not keeping your rules? Do you continually press people to justify their sin under some umbrella of Christian liberty? Well, let me revert to the world of dirt bikes for a moment. I raced for many years, and the one thing that is forever marked in my brain is these dads at the motocross track who berate their children, cuss their children, throw things at their children, rake their children over the coals at a motocross track. Why? They didn't perform to dad's standard. It's like the dad's trying to vicariously live through the son, and he wants him to succeed because he never did. And the, the kid leaves the motocross track hating the motorcycle, hating the track, and hating the dad because I can never live up to his standard. He has no smile, he has no laughter, he has no joy, and he just wishes he could walk away. Some of the greatest motorcycle riders in all of history, when they retired, they couldn't retire fast enough because they were sick of all the pressure to perform at a certain level. They just wanted out. That same mentality is what has killed the church. Guilt, 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 guilt. Perform, 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 perform. We want a church not guilt-driven. We want a church saved by grace, living by grace, delighting in our Savior with great joy. And I pray, you don't always feel that way. Maybe you don't always experience that. And I guarantee you, there's days I don't care nothing about smiling. Sometimes I have a bad week and I'd kick the dog, but I love my dog more than my kids, so I don't do that. But I, uh, but there's some days, it's days like that, right? But the truth of it is, when you boil it all down, my heart has great joy and gratitude to be in church and to worship together with you. And that's the way it ought to be. And I pray that you can experience that, enjoy that, spread it onto your family, that love would be real and tangible here for the glory of God and for the good of one another. I know there's a lot of this stuff taught, and I know there's a lot of attacks about the law, and I know there's a lot of attacks on the moral law. I'm not stupid, and I'm aware of what goes on. But I flat don't care what anybody else does. I'm just telling you to your face, I don't care what they say. I'm telling you, this is the biblical position. Love God, love neighbor, just like you. What you want done for you, do it for somebody else. That's the law of Christ. Love souls, love brothers and sisters. Do it for the glory of God and do it with joy. I'm glad to be under the law of Christ because I'm free to be a slave. Father in heaven, thank you for by the word Baptist Church. Lord, I don't have to tell you anything. You know everything and we surely are not perfect and I surely am a long ways from whatever perfect may be. The only perfect I know is Christ. And I know that there's no one that was more free and remains more free than Christ. And I know 
that no one has ever served me like Christ has served me. So Lord, I pray that we as a congregation can receive that, know that, and that we can imitate Christ, that in our freedom we can use it to serve one another fully in love for their good and for your glory. And God, as a result, our hearts would be full of joy and full of delight, and it would be a pleasant place to be at By the Word Baptist Church because it would be a place where genuine love could be experienced. Pray these things tonight by your Spirit, in Christ's name. And God's people said,